Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk to Stephanie Wisner, co-founder of Centivax, a therapeutics company that's creating universal vaccines to reduce and eradicate the remaining complex pathogens of the 21st century. She is also the author of a newly released book, Building Backwards to Biotech, The Power of Entrepreneurship to Drive Cutting-Edge Science to Market. We are excited to hear the story of how she became interested in chemical biology, what medical breakthroughs might be on the horizon for Centivax, and what inspires her as an entrepreneur. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember to rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom of this episode. That way, even more entrepreneurs can find the podcast and be inspired to follow their dreams. So welcome, Stephanie. Thanks, Kathy. It's an honor to be here. Very excited to discuss startups with you today. Great, great. I'm so glad you could be with us today. So Stephanie, why don't we start by having you give us the 30-second elevator pitch about Centivax, because we'd love to know more about what the company is all about, and also tell us a bit about your book. So Centivax is a universal vaccine company. And what that means is we're going after this problem of rapidly mutating viruses. So for example, with the coronavirus pandemic, we saw a great example of the impact and the risk of rapidly mutating viruses. Specifically, the coronavirus kept changing. There is constantly new variants coming out. And as a result, one vaccine was not sufficient to protect against all future variations. So people had to keep getting booster shots, which is not only expensive, but it's kind of unsustainable for people to perpetually get booster shots. And those booster shots are produced only after the variant comes out, rather than protecting people before the variant comes out. And so what Centivax does is we have this special computational immunoengineering platform that enables us to target parts of the virus that don't change and evolve. So that means you can get one vaccine that protects against all future strains of a virus. And so think about viruses like influenza that have composed prior pandemics and hold risk to become pandemics in the future. So by having a vaccine that will protect against all of that, we're also protecting against future pandemics. And it enables us to go after other rapidly mutating viruses, such as HIV, which there have traditionally not been vaccines for. That's fascinating. Yeah, tell us a bit about your book, too. Yeah, I'd love to. So my book is about biotech entrepreneurship, what it is, how I got into it, and what a new person entering the field or interested in the field needs to know about it. And the reason I wrote this book is as a young person with a STEM degree who didn't really have business training, getting into this industry was extremely difficult and confusing because biotechnology and drug development, as it should be, is complicated. But what that results in is a lot of information that isn't readily available in an easy, understandable way for someone who is coming from a science perspective. And I believe for there to be that next horizon of new medicines for the future to treat currently untreatable diseases, we need to have more biotech entrepreneurs getting into this space. And those entrepreneurs are often going to be scientists because they're the ones that understand the basic science enough to know how to innovate and create new medicines, but they don't understand the business a lot of times. So I wrote this book to make that more accessible for them so that we can get more entrepreneurs into this space. That's great. 
So anybody who's a scientist and has an idea that they think might be able to turn into some kind of business could read your book and perhaps gain some knowledge that you would have taken years to acquire. Yes, that's the idea. That's great. What's the latest with Centivax? You talked a little bit about the influenza vaccine, which is really exciting. Talk about the various things you're working on and what your biggest priority is right now. Sure. So our first product in development is this universal influenza vaccine. We just received back very promising animal data, which is kind of the first proof of concept in drug development. And we are developing that in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which have very kindly funded us and our research. So the next step will be finalizing the formulation of the vaccine and then running kind of the necessary early safety studies in animals that will show that, you know, it's safe and efficacious enough for us to move forward into clinical trials, which is the final, like, big hurdle you have to get through in drug development to bring something to the market. So. That's the latest on that. And then in addition to that, we have a lot of other assets. So we do have early stage COVID and HIV vaccines in development. And in addition, we also have therapeutic antibody programs. That's a big word. Most people are actually pretty familiar with this now due to COVID. So if you heard about all the monoclonal antibody therapies that were out there for treating people who were already sick with COVID, a vaccine protects you from getting sick in the first place but an antibody is a medicine to treat you when you get sick. We're creating something like that for multi-drug resistant bacteria. So we're going after that problem of bacteria that rapidly mutates and can evade current antibiotic therapies. That's another project that we're working on. And we also have some projects in cancer and really fun one in antivenom. So if you get bit by a snake, You don't have to identify what sort of snake bit you before you can take the right medicine to save your life. (laughs) So lots of problems like that. Right. It sounds like there's a million different applications for this kind of technology for a universal vaccine or universal treatment. Exactly. Yes. So universal vaccine as well as rapidly mutating pathogens through medicines. So the idea would be that someone could, at some age, uh, the doctors determine, get one flu vaccine and then for the rest of your life? You wouldn't have to get another one or like a tetanus shot, like every 10 years or something like that. Would that be the final goal or in the same with COVID? Yes, I think we're still exploring what that timeline would look like, but the idea would be one forever. So talk a bit about how your experience at Cornell, I know you were a chemistry major, and I think you were an English minor, which is very cool. That's right, yes. (laughs) And so talk about some of the experiences you had when you were a student here. Did you know when you were a student that you were really interested in drug development? Is that something that arose later? And were there any experiences here that helped you decide what to do after you were done with school? Yeah, great question. So I actually had no idea that I would ever go into entrepreneurship because it was not at all on my radar. So as a student at Cornell, I was kind of your straight-laced pre-med student, (laughs) of which there are many running around. And I chose to study chemistry because I loved understanding how biological systems worked. So big problems in biology like cancer, Alzheimer's, all of that. Chemistry has a very special lens through which to kind of understand those things because you can look at the individual atom level on proteins. And so I was very, very enthused about going to medical school because I thought that I wanted to go after treating currently untreatable diseases and going into medicine seemed like a, a good way to do that. So while I was at Cornell, I spent a lot of time in the Henning Lin lab. Big shout out to him. He was an incredible mentor. 
to me all through undergrad, as well as people like Roger Loring and lots of others in the chem department who were just so inspiring and helpful in my scientific journey. And so I worked in a research lab where we studied cancer from a chemical biology lens. And I was so excited by all the new innovative things that we were constantly discovering, whether that was pathways, potential mechanisms of proteins, etc. So after I graduated, before I went to medical school, I decided to continue on in research. So I worked at a lab at University of Michigan, which was a pancreatic cancer chemical biology lab. And similarly, I was so excited by all the things we were discovering. But At this point, I kind of noticed a problem, and the problem was this. We are constantly discovering all these innovative new things, but in academia, the incentive structure is such that, and this is not anything wrong with academia, this is just kind of the way it is, the incentive structure is such that you discover things in order to publish about them, not so that they actually come to the market and can affect real patients. And... I was so excited by the things that we were doing that I wanted to see them actually come to life and help people that needed it. And because I wanted to go to medical school, at the same time, I was also doing medical scribing in a primary care setting at University of Michigan. And in the primary care setting, I also saw a problem, which is that there were consistently patients we were seeing that had diseases for which there weren't good treatment options. And particularly in pancreatic cancer, the standard of care has not changed very much in 20 to 40 years. Pancreatic cancer is almost entirely deadly if you get it. And the survival rate has remained largely unaffected. But if you look at the research side while I was working in the lab, we were constantly discovering potential new ways of treating the disease. But those findings were not, you know, because this is just not the way academia works, not necessarily readily translatable into actually affecting people with the disease. And that bothered me because on the one hand, you had patients who needed new medicines. And on the other hand, you had innovations with no path to real world application. And so I became interested in finding a way to bridge those two things. This is where Cornell comes back into the story. So around that time, I got a random email from Cornell for what was called the I-Corps program. And the subject line of the email was entrepreneurial training for scientists learn how to turn your research into something practical. And I looked at that and I really had no conception of what entrepreneurship was. I'm talking, I had never taken a single business class. Like some people at Cornell who were pre-med would dabble in business minors or take economics or something like that. I never did any of that. (laughs) I was so deeply uninvolved in entrepreneurship and it was never on my radar. But you know, I'm reading through this email and I'm like, hmm, this is intriguing and it seems to kind of fit this problem I'm seeing. So I'm going to go. So I spontaneously signed myself up. I also signed up a friend of mine, which she doesn't like to let me forget (laughs) because I did not tell her what it was. And we hopped in my car and we drove from Michigan back to Ithaca to do this class. And I was very lucky to have incredible instructors there. So shout out to Brad Treat, Andrea Ippolito, and Ken Rother, who are three Cornell professors and also were the ones teaching this class. And all three of them kind of came around me and helped me flesh out this business idea I'd come up with. And i is all about building a business to solve a real world problem. And so they helped me flesh out just the potential of business to do that on a larger scale. And at the end of the class, I remember them telling me, you seem to have a knack for business. Have you ever thought about going into business or getting an MBA? 
And I said, very honestly, no, I have literally never thought about that. I thought I was going to medical school. (laughs) And I thankfully, all three of them kind of continued to mentor me and encouraged me to go for my MBA. So within only, I think, six weeks of taking the I-Corps class, I had applied to business school. (laughs) And previous to this, keep in mind, I never thought about business in my life. So this was a very strong pivot for me. So I applied to University of Chicago, mostly because I only applied there mostly for two reasons. Number one, I was only 23 at the time when I was applying. So that's kind of young for business school. Typically, you kind of work for a while. Two, they had this special program at University of Chicago where you could start as a young person, but also hold a full-time job, which was really important to me because I wanted to continue getting real-world experience. So I applied to Booth. Thankfully, I got in. (laughs) And I started that March, so 2018. So that would be four years ago now. And I immediately was able to get plugged into biotech and entrepreneurship. Luckily, on my first day on campus, I ran into someone who connected me to a startup that was looking for a scientist who could speak to biotech. And one thing led to another. I started BioVenture Advising, which was my first company, which is still going. It was a consulting business. And through that company, I had the opportunity to consult for multiple different biotech clients. At first, my value add was really being able to take the basic science and translate it to something that would appeal to investors, the public, and you know just something that made sense to other people. And my Cornell training actually really came into play there as well because I had so much basic science training, even though I only had a bachelor's from all of my mentors and my time in research at Cornell. And I also was an organic chemistry tutor the whole time I was there. So I was very used to taking these kind of esoteric concepts and making them comprehensible. So all of that came into play. And then as I continued in my MBA degree, I was able to speak to the business side itself increasingly specifically. And then at the beginning of 2020, one of my clients told me he was starting a new company, that'd be Jacob Glanville, who's incredible and just a brilliant entrepreneur. So he asked me if I would consider co-founding the company with him. And I'd worked with him for a little bit at that point and had followed his work for years prior. And so I decided to take the jump. And so in 2020, we started Centivax and we've been working on that ever since. Wow. So when you headed to business school, did you still have in the back of your mind that you still might go to medical school? Or had you already decided, well, I think I'm not going to go to medical school. Like, I really think this is what I want to do. I would say a little bit of both, (laughs) if that makes sense. So I think I had largely decided that medical school is great, but just wasn't probably the right path for me because what I cared about was scientific innovation and medical school. You could do it in that setting, but it's just potentially not the most direct route. But I think at the same time, I had no specific plans. In some ways, I think, at least for me, medical school felt like a very safe option as an undergrad because it's a very pre-prescribed path to follow. You take certain classes, you check off certain boxes, you fill out an application where you kind of know what components you need to do, then you do four years of medical school, and then residency, and then fellowship, and it's a very prescribed path. And in some ways, and that's great, there's nothing wrong with that, but in some ways that was me making a safe choice because it felt like everything was, you know, defined for me. 
And so getting into entrepreneurship and pivoting into business school was actually pretty terrifying for me, if I'm being honest, because number one, it was a total 180 from what I had spent my life expecting that I would do for a career. And as I said, it was a pivot I made fairly quickly. And number two, it was also something that I didn't know where I might head in the future. Unlike medicine, where there's kind of a steps A through Z program, entrepreneurship gives no guarantees of success if you succeed at steps through A through Z, because there are no steps A through Z. So it was definitely really scary. And I think probably in the back of my mind, I said, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I can always go to medical school <laughs> or, you know, apply to medical school. So I wonder if the i program gave you the confidence to even, I mean, it sounds like they, you know, really encouraged you as an entrepreneur and thought that you had the skills that were, were needed. Do you think if you hadn't done the i program, there would have been any way that you would have ended up in business school? I suppose there's always a possibility, but I think that was the biggest factor for sure. And just the encouragement of people who were themselves entrepreneurs, all three of them have started and sold companies in the past successfully. So for all three of them to look at me, someone who had never even thought about entrepreneurship, didn't even know what revenue was, was Googling it under the table during class, <laughs> was, you know, very encouraging and played a huge role in my hobby, even enough confidence to think that I could do this. That's awesome. So you talked about some of the situations you encountered as a research student in pancreatic cancer and other things you were studying and not seeing any applications happening. Are those some of the same kind of diseases or issues that you think that Centivex might be able to address through therapeutics down the line? Are there just a lot of different possibilities for what Centivex could become? Or are there just some other companies that will also need to like tackle some of those other problems? I think it's a mix of both. So Centivax is very focused on rapidly mutating viruses, but the technology does have potential for treating certain types of cancers. So I think that there definitely is potential for us to have impact there. But I guess to answer the second part of your question, I think there's always a role for more companies and more innovation and more aspects of treating the disease to go through development. A lot of those drugs, because drug failure rates are very high, a lot of those drugs will fail in the process, but that's okay. Part of the beauty of startups is it's taking these concepts out of the lab and it's putting them into the real world and testing them. So instead of wondering for 10 years whether this new concept that a professor found in their lab actually would work to treat cancer, you get to actually see if it does. And a lot of those concepts won't work in the real world setting, but testing them is part of the excitement of a biotech startup. Because if you succeed, you have the potential to impact people in a huge way. And if you fail, it's still a success in a way because you've gotten the chance to prove out a concept in a very real world way. And that matters too, because it saves other people time from doing more research down pathways that aren't going to lead to anything. And I wonder, because of COVID and other things we're living through, if you think that there's more biotech companies that are going to be started or have been started, like have you met and networked with other people who are trying to do this? And would your book help some aspiring student or some researcher in some lab to start something like you guys have started? Yes. So I think my book would definitely help people who want to get into the industry themselves or even just understand it and how it works. Even people that are going to stay in academia, their research has the potential 
to impact translational medical development. And so even if they stay within academia, it's very helpful for them to understand how biotech and drug development works because then they can make their research such that someone else can kind of take it and develop it more easily. Because like I said, part of the problem is just that academia is very siloed from the market and drug development, typically. That's changing a little bit now. To answer the first part of your question, biotech has been a booming industry, increasingly so, up to the pandemic and especially because of the pandemic. So more and more people are becoming aware of biotech. They're becoming excited about it. There has been record-setting amounts of money going into biotech in the last few years, which is very exciting. At this particular moment, the biotech public markets are kind of suffering, much like many companies in the public markets right now, but there's still a lot of capital out there and people are very excited about biotech, I think due in part to the COVID pandemic. Because previously, I would tell people what I did. You know, I started in biotech in 2018, and I would tell people what I did, and they would, you know, kind of eyes glaze over because they had no idea what I was doing, what I was talking about. And now suddenly, a lot of people are kind of, quote unquote, armchair immunologists. My company is an immunology company. And they're also a lot more interested in and aware of drug development. So that's been kind of fun and exciting. I think there's more people wanting to go into it, but there's also more people aware of it and more people able to speak to it. That's good to know that there's more funding and more interest in that, the capital part of it too, because I'm sure that's incredibly important. Yes, definitely. So let's move a little bit to some things about you as an entrepreneur, because I always think it's interesting for other aspiring entrepreneurs to find out, you know, what kind of things make an entrepreneur tick. One thing I wondered was, do you have a personal mission statement that you go by in your life? That's a great question. I probably have several. So I am a Christian. So one driving mission statement for me is definitely to glorify God through my life and make him known. And part of the way I've chosen to do that is through medical innovation and being a part of biotech companies. And I think the second part of that, or perhaps the second mission statement, is that I believe in working on hard problems that matter, which lots of people say that. And I think it's important to be passionate about what you're doing. But I think where my first mission statement affects the second is I think people don't always feel comfortable with the concept that we're all kind of forgettable. I know that sounds weird, but allow me to continue. I will be forgotten, you know, eventually. The person that I am and the fact that I existed are not going to be known by everyone forever. And I think part of making your life matter is being aware of that and realizing that you might be forgotten, but the things that you do have the ability to reverberate through generations. And I think a lot of times people think about success through a lens of how can I be great as opposed to how can I solve great problems. And so I think that for me, I constantly try and remind myself of why I'm doing something that I'm doing. Why am I building a company? Why am I writing a book? Is it about me? Is it to make myself greater? Or is it about actually making an impact for humanity down the road and making the world better? Because that's what's lasting. I'm not lasting. So I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Have you always felt that way ever since you were a kid growing up that that was, you know, that you were given this mission to do something and to make a difference? 
I think everyone likes to think that. So I'm sure I did think that. I do think as I was younger, I was definitely more me focused as most of us are. And, you know, maybe just wanted to be famous or something. And I'm definitely not famous. So, you know, given up on that dream. But (laughs) uh, I think just like life and allowing yourself to be humbled by the ways in which a lot of life is just out of your control. And I think maturing is becoming cognizant of that, but also being aware of the ways in which you have agency in the world and you have the ability to impact things. And I think holding those two things together is very uncomfortable, but it's also important because at the intersection is where you're able to have impact. And I wonder if your status, the stage of your company right now, you probably haven't met actual people who are going to be taking your, you know, not to clinical trials yet or anything, but are there some stories of people or are there some people or some situations that you have in mind when you think about why you're doing what you're doing or what kinds of problems that you will solve that make you kind of keep going and get up every morning and tackle the really difficult problems that you have? Yeah, for sure. So I wrote about this in my book as well, but I think it's so important in biotech, especially because you're doing day-to-day science and running a business. And that is a bit disconnected from the end user, which is a patient, a patient who needs a new medicine. And I think the best science And the best biotech is done when you think about that personal aspect. What can you make that's impactful to help someone to create a medicine that actually matters? So here's an actual example, an interview from my book. So John Crowley, he's the CEO of a company called Amicus Therapeutics. And fun fact, he helped develop a medicine through a biotech startup to save the lives of his children who didn't have a medicine for their rare disease. And the story was so interesting that it was turned into a movie featuring Harrison Ford and Brendan Fraser. Oh, I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had the opportunity to meet John Crowley and interview him for my book. And something he focused on a lot, which I included in the book and I want to talk about here because I think it's so important for entrepreneurs and especially biotech tech entrepreneurs to think about is just having that patient focus when you make decisions. So he told me about how one time they were developing this drug, they had just started clinical trials, which is a, you know, super big step in drug development if you've made it to that point. And a few weeks into the trial, he got the news from his chief scientific officer that the medicine was actually making people worse, which is obviously crushing. And thinking about you know, clearly what's best for patients, you know, sometimes there's, there's ways to like, you know, finagle the data or to, you know, think about what might be best for the business. He thought about the patients. And so he immediately pulled the trial, called the FDA, the stock price dropped 50% in a day. And, you know, it felt a lot like failure, but because he was so focused on those patients, he didn't want to give up on going after this disease. And so he started another program where sometimes, you know, in biotech, if you fail in a disease area, it's hard sometimes to get the support and the funding to try another medicine in the same disease area because it gets looked at kind of like a lost cause. And so John was very, very much wanting to impact these patients because as part of Amicus, he would have patients and their families come in 
and meet with them and talk about like how hard things were and how much they needed new medicines to treat these currently untreatable diseases so that their children don't die. And so he, you know, went back to the drawing board and found something else that looks to be even better now. And as of the time of publication, they had successfully gone through all three stages of clinical trials for this drug and filed with the FDA which is huge. And so what he told me was having patients at the center of what we do is not only good ethics, it's also good business because it drove us to find a better solution for patients. And it drives us to keep going when we have setbacks. And I think that that's something that I have really tried to take to heart day to day and to really keep an eye on the big picture impact of what we're doing. We're not just doing cool science or building cool companies, even though, yes, we're doing that too. We're also ultimately trying to create something that helps people and keeping an eye on that as you make day to day decisions seems like something small, but can actually make a really big difference. I'm sure as an entrepreneur, you've been given a lot of advice. Talk about maybe the best piece of advice you've ever been given. And if you want, you can also tell us about the worst piece of advice you've ever been given. Sure. That's a great question. So I think the worst piece of advice I ever got, it was not necessarily a piece of advice. It was more a commentary on my personality. In case you haven't picked up on this yet, I am someone who's willing to break the status quo and kind of go out on a limb when necessary. And sometimes that, you know, can look like things that are unnecessary, but are just part of my personality. So for example, when I started business school, and I was also starting my business, I really didn't want to take a ton of debt from school. But I wanted to live in a safe area. I live in Chicago. And there's a lot of unsafe areas in Chicago. So I decided to entrepreneur my way to having affordable rent, but living in a nice area. So I kind of picked this building that I liked. I signed a one-bedroom lease by myself, knowing full well that I probably shouldn't pay for the whole thing by myself because it would break my budget. And then I did the work to find someone that wanted to pay 70% of the rent and lease the, like, one bedroom. And then I lived in the living room and, like, had a little day bed that I stayed in and paid 30% of the rent. And so I was able to live in a pretty nice building and keep my expenses really low. And this was a big joke with my friend of like Stephanie in her living room bedroom. Like they had never met anyone else who did that. You probably haven't. I definitely haven't. And so I guess to get to the piece of worst advice. So I definitely had a lot of commentary especially when I was younger, like Stephanie, why can't you just do things the way everyone else does them? Like, why do you always have to do things differently? Sometimes you can just like stick to the status quo. And you know what? There's some truth to that. Sometimes I can stick to the status quo and I should stick to the status quo. And I think that's fair. But I think what this person failed to understand is that in order to actually have an impact, if you're having an impact in a novel way, That by definition means that you don't look the way everyone else does. The way you're coming at a problem doesn't look the way everyone else thinks it should. For example, ride sharing sounded crazy until it was done, right? And so all of the best innovation that happens starts with someone who sees something that other people don't see. And I think a lot of times, and I definitely was this way when I was a student, a lot of times people feel the need to like, fit in or it feels safer to do things the way everyone else has done them. But sometimes the biggest impact actually necessitates deviating from what's standard. And it's easy to want to feel validated by other people. And 
you know, I should say it's very important to have your ideas vetted and to make sure you're not totally crazy. But at the same time, sometimes you just have to take some risks on a future that you see and that other people maybe don't. And I think knowing where that is, is a really important thing. Whereas if you kind of stick to doing what makes sense to everyone else, like that's fine. Like there's a role for that, but you're probably never going to create something or break the mold in a way that's totally new. So that would be the worst piece of advice. That's true. And I think those skills of being willing to take a risk and do things against the grain of what everyone else is doing are definitely something that most entrepreneurs probably have. Exactly. I do think that personality is built, though. Like, I do have that personality, but it also, like, needed some nurturing. I had a lot of people, including my mentors, who encouraged me and who told me, no, you're not crazy. You know, maybe I don't specifically understand why you feel the need to start a company right now, but I think it makes sense. And I had other people tell me they didn't think it made sense. And I had to weigh those, <laughs> weigh those pieces of advice, you know, in the end, go with my gut. And I'm a big fan of what I call calculated risk. So I was well aware that I was taking some risks by starting a company so young, by coming to business school, all of that. But at the same time, I had this sense of, okay, this is kind of what it's going to take for me to succeed. And I had a definition of failure too, wherein I would pursue a fallback plan. So I think there's a way to take those risks and a way to listen to that negative feedback, but not to do it in a way that's totally crippling. So how about your best piece of advice? Yeah, I mean, I think my best piece of advice for people, especially Cornell students, is that I think, you know, I joke about this a lot, but I'm pretty sure like 75% of like my Cornell class of 2016 class went into consulting. And so the joke is always like, who's actually running the company if everyone's doing the consulting? But I make that joke to say, I think like a lot of people go into consulting, a lot of people go to grad school. None of that's wrong. I mean, that's great. We need people that do that. But I think sometimes people make those decisions because it feels safer and it feels like there's a prescribed path to success there. Whereas again, I think a lot of times where you can have a greater impact is being willing to go down a path that isn't pre-prescribed and isn't predefined and being willing to see specific problems in the world that need solving and saying, you know what, like I'm the one who is going to go after this specific problem. And also hear me say this, I think it's very important that we as young people have a sense of humility and an awareness of the things we don't know. So there's certainly, certainly a role for going to grad school, for working in a company and learning from people that went before you. That is absolutely true. But there's also a role at the right times to pursue creating something new that can have an impact in areas in a new way where, you know, going to grad school working for a big corporation maybe wouldn't have as easily or as directly. So talk about one thing that perhaps people would be surprised to find out about you. Some interesting hobby or some interesting side thing that's interesting about you that people might not know. Probably a lot of things. Let me think about this. Which one you want to reveal I know, is the question. I know. I have always loved to write. As a high school student, my favorite classes are my science classes and my English classes. And I remember getting the advice that I could be a scientist and do writing on the side. And I never really liked that very much, but it turns out that's actually what I ended up doing. I, you know, work at Centivax and I have a book and I also do some freelance writing. So when I got to Cornell, I was never intending on it completing an English minor. What happened is that I had to take like an expository writing class and 
I, again, had just like an incredibly encouraging professor. He's no longer at Cornell, but his name was Sam Nam. And he read my writing and I was kind of like, you know, going through it because I had to, to graduate. And he told me that, you know, I had promised and that it was good and that I should work on it more. And he made me fall in love with writing again in a way that I hadn't in high school. And so I ended up deciding to continue on. And so I took increasingly advanced English classes to get the minor. I had a really great professor there who's still there, Stephanie Vaughn, who I took, I think, intermediate expository writing with. And she was just so incredibly encouraging of of me and of my work and gave me very constructive criticism. And so it made me want to keep going after graduation. And I would write for fun. Actually, what happened with the book is that I was medical scribing and I was If you read the introduction to my book, it's about kind of that feeling I had when I was seeing all these patients coming in that didn't have any options left. I felt that very deeply. And the introduction to the book was written back in 2016 when I was a medical scribe in between patient appointments. I, you know, wrote on my medical scribe computer, you know, I wrote out all of my thoughts and feelings, I guess, about witnessing this and just started as kind of a journal entry or a freeform essay. And I had no idea what I was going to do without writing at the time. And I remember I even showed it to someone and he read it and he was like, well, this is like well written and it's good, but I don't know where you're going with this. (laughs) And I said, well, I don't know where I'm going with it either. And then years later, as I like, you know, started to think about compiling this book, I came back to that essay and it captured the essence of why I think biotech matters. And so I ended up leading off the book with that essay, with an edited version of that essay. And, you know, I can attribute a lot of that to just the impact at Cornell of, you know, professors that instilled a love of writing in me where I was doing it just for fun and just to process things. That's great. So there's another surprising thing, too, that people might not know. There is, which is that I work remotely, which is awesome and a privilege. But what that results in is I can work from anywhere. So I really like to travel. Back in 2019, this is before Centivax, but I had consulting clients. I took 53 flights in 2019. And oh my gosh, yeah, still a frequent flyer traveler. I'm actually flying out to go visit Sensivax next week on Tuesday. And then I'm flying to Southern California and then back to Chicago. But I just find traveling so fun. I think there's something really energizing about it. And I think a lot of people feel that way. But I think what's unique about me is the quantity. So where are you right now? Are you in Chicago right now or are you somewhere else? I am in Chicago right now. Over the weekend, I was in Cleveland, Ohio, visiting a friend of mine in medical school. Actually, the friend that I dragged to i back in 2017. And then the week before that, I was in D.C. So it's just, yeah, I've been everywhere. <laughs> there are some benefits to the remote work environment that let you go wherever. For sure. Which is great. For sure. So can you talk a bit about the tools you use to make your life easier? Are there some certain software programs that you find really helpful or apps? Are there physical things that you use that you think have made your business life easier? Yes. So I am ironically kind of a low tech person and people always think I'm lying about it because they're like, okay, you're in biotech, like surely you understand tech. And the answer is I do not. (laughs) My brother, actually Cornell class of 2019, he's the software engineer in the family. So he's kind of the tech person. I use a very low tech system, which is I have notes on my phone that sync to my computer. And something I like and not everyone is like this, is I like to balance multiple projects at once. So for example, I've been writing the book over the past three and a half years. 
And then I also had multiple consulting clients and I was also getting my MBA. So lots of things to balance. I find that exciting because you can see synergies between different things when you're doing a lot at once. But what that necessitates is just a way to make sure that you're on top of everything. So I write out weekly goals. Actually, I write annual goals and then I break those down to quarterly goals and then I break those down to weekly goals to make sure that I'm actually driving at something because it's so easy to go through every week and just be like showing up for the nine to five, but not actually necessarily moving closer towards the bigger personal goals or the bigger goals of the business, et cetera, et cetera. And so I set weekly goals and then I write out my schedule of all the fixed meetings and stuff I have on Sundays. And then I schedule in ways to drive at my goals. So for example, when I was writing the book, I wanted to do one chapter a week. So then I would schedule in when am I going to do the writing? When am I going to do the interviews? Am I actually like driving towards that? Or for Cenevax, we're in the middle of raising a series A and and so I need to be contacting a certain number of investors per week, that sort of thing. That That's how I kind of make sure that we're actually driving towards bigger goals. And I think just to make this more applicable, perhaps for the average person, I think that all of us are at risk of just letting life happen as opposed to, like I said, having agency in it. And it's easy to set big goals, but then not give yourself a path to achieve them. So I think just the formal process of setting annual goals actually helps a lot because people, I think, mistakenly have this concept that if they just kind of follow the twists and turns of life, that they'll somehow end up at a desired end result that they like. And, you know, there's a role for that, of course, because as I said, we can't control everything in life and things happen all the time that are difficult or, you know, that we can't plan for. But with that said, I think that something I would like to impart to Cornell students and people in general is like, we all have things like that that we want, but people infrequently think about how to get there in a systematic way. And for me, thinking about where I want to end up in life and then building backwards to that with annual goals and then building backwards to that from weekly goals. That enables me to balance everything and actually, ironically, have rest because I know that I am driving towards what I want to be driving towards as opposed to having anxiety of am I really doing what I want to be doing with my time and my life. And so since you've just written a book, I'm curious to find out if there are other books that you read in your free time. Do you typically read things that are more about entrepreneurship or business or biotech or articles? Do you try to lose yourself in some kind of novel or what do you like to read in your free time? That's a great question. So I love reading. I will say that I read a lot less than I normally do in the last couple years as I've been finalizing the book because pretty much all my mental energy was going towards writing. But I read a big mix of things on my nightstand right now. And I'm also one of those people that reads seven books in parallel And you can argue about how often I actually finish one before moving to another. I'm like, oh, I kind of had the idea here and I'll move on, sometimes to a fault. But on my nightstand right now, I have a book called Venture Deals, which is all about like term sheets and creating, you know, a deal structure. I also have this book called The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. So kind of like talking about how that developed. Then I have this memoir called Crying in H-Mart, written by this woman who's half Korean. I'm also half Korean. So just kind of, you know, reading about her experience was interesting. And then I have a book called Immune, A Journey into the Mysterious System That Keeps You Alive, which is kind of like a layman's 
immunology book. I'm not an immunologist. As you've mentioned, I'm a chemical biologist. So, oh, and then I have one more, which is Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. So I read like Christian books as well. Kind of a broad swath of things. I am a very curious person. So I enjoy learning and reading from a lot of different things. I definitely have lots of business books as well, but I try and mix it up. That is quite an eclectic collection of different things that you're reading all at the same time. But if there's anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure that we cover. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say for anyone who listens to this, I welcome cold contacts. So anyone who wants to reach out to me, my email is wisner.stephanie.a at gmail.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn. I am happy to talk to anyone who wants advice, just wants to connect. I think it's really important to, I guess, give back. I had a lot of people really invest in me. And so I'm always really happy to talk to anyone. So just want to throw that out there. Additionally, I think that something I'd like to leave students with is just this idea of you're young and it's important as a young person to do a couple things. Number one, realize that this is probably the most creative time you'll have in your life. I don't want to say that super definitively, but when you're young, I think there's kind of this power of creativity that just becomes potentially slightly less as you get older and kind of accept the world increasingly the way it is, as opposed to the way you think it should be. While you're young, I think there's this energy and potentially a sense of naiveness about the world, but you can leverage that as a young person and really create some cool things that potentially you wouldn't see or think to do when you were older. And then second, I think that really important piece of advice that goes with the first is that I cannot overemphasize the role of humility. I think a lot of young people, you know, and I'm sure I fall into this category myself sometimes, but I think a lot of young people can sometimes be so excited by the ideas they have that they think they know everything or they think they understand a problem fully. And I just want to say, like, don't overestimate yourself and don't underestimate wisdom from people that are generations older than you. One of my most frequent mentors that I call for everything is in her mid 60s. And she advises me on things day to day that maybe she hasn't directly experienced, but she's seen so much as someone who has lived so much more of life than me that I am constantly made better by that interaction. And so just the role of having mentors and not being afraid to ask for help. And on that note, point three, asking for help isn't always asking to do something new or asking for advice on a specific things, I think a really important thing and a role with mentors is being receptive to negative feedback. And that's a lot harder to do than it, than it sounds. But not feeling defensive when someone's giving you a piece of negative feedback and really asking yourself, how can I implement this? That's important. And even actively asking people, like the mentor I mentioned before, I'll frequently call her and just relay a meeting that had just happened. And I'll say, you know, XYZ happened. And I said this, did I handle that right? And we have this sort of relationship. I've cultivated this sort of relationship where she knows she can tell me, no, I don't think you handled that right. And here's why. And I can hear that and not get totally defensive. And that has made me better and more effective. The fact that I can have someone that tells me those things and that I can take that feedback and not get totally like shut down by it. So that's a huge, huge thing. And I think a lot of people are not so good at that. 
Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been really wonderful to hear all about your company and what you're up to. And it's exciting to think about the next few years and what that might bring. So I appreciate you spending some time with us. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. This has been an absolute blast. And I just want to say I really appreciate the invitation. I really appreciate Cornell and just all the opportunities that I was given as both a student and an alumni there. Thank you again for having me. So to find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And please remember to rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom of this episode and sharing your thoughts. Your reviews help even more entrepreneurs find our podcast and be inspired by stories like Stephanie's. And a special thank you to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studios.